what should I say to my kids and how I've got teenage daughters, um, how am I going to address that with them, is to be open and honest and explain the reason to them the same as they often word it to us. So I want to feel comfortable in my own skin but also pain-free. And I think when they are open and honest and address it like that, that the kids are not then immediately going to be like, oh, okay, you know, I want a boob job because mum has too. Welcome back to Keeping It Real, the plastic surgery podcast your friends have been telling you to listen to. This week, Richard and Kim are tackling the hard questions. Not in a quick answer this anatomy quiz way, but more introspective and some critical self-analysis of the industry we work in. We're going to unpack topics like body dysmorphia and how the body acceptance movement has impacted how patients see their bodies. We discuss if having plastic surgery makes you anti-feminist or whether mums having work done leads to daughters wanting it as well. So buckle up and let's challenge some tough topics. Hello, Richard and Kim. Welcome to Hard Questions. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Okay, so today we're going to go through a couple of the things people maybe outside of the plastic surgery world or inside the plastic surgery world's uh, kind of struggle with or maybe don't fully understand. Um, the first one we've got here, so body dysmorphia, certainly not a new problem. It's been affecting men, women, everything in between for a long, long time. But obviously the advent of things like social media and Photoshop have ensured just unrealistic and unachievable bodies are being flooded into our consciousness most of the day, every day. What role do you think plastic surgery plays into that? Good question. My spin on it is probably slightly different. I mean, I know you alluded to the social media aspect and there's, there's certainly an aspect of, of aspirational bodies and, and appearances, which the Kardashians are probably the, the biggest example. And I mean, the, the joke of the whole thing is that you know, recently it's all come out that a lot of that is actually fake. Um, I think the role of social media on that is actually can be quite a positive one. And that's the way we've always used social media to educate people and explain things um, and to create realistic expectations and create a community whereby people can ask questions of previous patients. For me, social media has actually had the reverse effect on my practice. It's made it easier because a lot of these patients are, are much better educated and so they come to a consultation not with unrealistic expectations but realistic expectations and a great knowledge of, of what is available. They've listened to our podcasts, they've watched our lives, they've followed us on social media, they've spoken, they're in our Facebook group, they've followed previous patients. Previous patients give them advice. And so they come in and, and they'll tell me what I'm going to tell them. They'll come in and they'll say, I know you're going to say I've got to lose 10 kilos. And I say, yeah, you do. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. And I think patients that have true body dysmorphia is something that's so and it's not that we're being um blind to it. Like I think it's it, it really is very very rare. And I would say probably way less than 1% of patients that I would see so you know at most one or two patients a year that would come in with really unrealistic expectations and Sometimes it's not actually body dysmorphia that they want to have the perfect appearance. It's maybe that they 
don't have a true vision of where they're starting from. So they they come in and they show me a photo of this is what I want to look like afterwards. But it, it's an impossible expectation. So um, it's not you know necessarily that body dysmorphia. Um, so I, I think it's way less common than what some outlets and um, societies and just the way that the word is used is mm. not an accurate reflection. I watched a documentary the other day and, you know, it was with anorexia and they're like, oh, you know, social media. And they're like, oh, no, it's a mental illness. Like they're like, sure, it doesn't help, but that's not what's sparking the anorexia. That's something that's happening in their brain. Absolutely. And it's also the same as um, if someone's watching and following our social media, for example, it, it doesn't mean... <laughs> They're suddenly going to be like, oh, I need that operation that I that they don't need. Um, it, it's way more about education rather than um, trying to convince someone that they um, should have an operation that they don't actually want or need. Question for you, KT. How do yes. you deal? Like I've, I've had a patient recently who just came in and said, like, so, so how can I help you? And, and the, the answer was, I don't know, just fix me. Uh, th- that's a tricky one and I, I, I've had a similar comment before where, and it was a phrase I wasn't really so familiar with where they said, I want to be snatched. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't like, so know what that means. <laughs> but it, I was just like, uh, okay, like I really need you to describe in words <laughs> what part of your body you would like me to look at and what concerns you about that. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of tr- then try and get them to verbalise. Um, and it's also like if someone comes in and the first thing they try and do is show you f- photos or pictures, um, I actually say, look, let's just have a chat first. Totally agree. If you can tell me in words not what the fix is, but if you can describe to me what you don't like or you know, what parts of you. And, yeah, if someone says, no, you you look at me and tell me, what you can fix, I'm oh, pretty much that's, this. That's sounds like a trap. Oh, <laughs> massive, massive red flag. Yeah. And I start my consultations exactly the same way. I, you know, tell me what your concerns are and it's it's not my job to pick up what their concerns are. I mean... And also it's important to have that red flag if they are showing you a heavily photoshopped photo of Kendall Jenner. Mm. And you're like, okay, well, we can't do that for you, baby, because she doesn't look like that. No. Absolutely. And it's but, also if someone comes in and says... Um, describes the exact procedure that they want and how I'm going to do it. Like I don't go, I walk into the hairdressers and say, <laughs> you know, cut my hair how you think it's going to look for me. Not you have to cut this bit to this um, length. Um, so yeah, it, I it's good for people to have looked at images and have an idea of what their goals would be, but to tell us how to do an operation yeah <laughs> red flag a little again. too involved so, yeah like uh, tell me what tell me what your concerns are what your problems are and I will then be able to tell you how to fix it if I can and it, whether that's realistic it's like the old joke where the patient goes in to see the plastic surgeon and then the consultation the plastic surgeon says look I can fix the bump on your nose we can make it smaller we can give you a flat nose and make it smaller and the patient says I'm actually here to talk about the mole on my cheek <laughs> 
Speaking, you mentioned earlier that like body dysmorphia, you know, it's overused and it's something that's kind of like overly referred to and um, not in its true form. <laughs> With people who clearly have body dysmorphia, you know, the, the Ken doll or the Catwoman and people you see that like, you know, plastic surgery is their personality type and they go to these like intense levels to change how they look. Where do you guys stand on kind of having your own barriers and uh, rules in place for patients like that? It's pretty hard to screen for that before patients come in. So to a certain extent, we're going to see people like that. Fortunately, it's not actually that common. But, you know, we've got strategies for dealing with patients who we're concerned that they are unrealistic in their expectations and generally – um, I'll refer them on to a psychologist who deals with body dysmorphia. And for me, I, this is a person that I've worked with for many years. I probably think she, she might see less than 1% of patients who I see. And of them, them, maybe half go and see her. And the ones that see her generally come back for surgery and it's all great. And the ones that don't want to see her, that's kind of the test. And then they, they shop, don't come for surgery. Probably shop around and find someone who will do what exactly what they want yeah. without, and, you know, are most likely to get an unhappy outcome. Yeah, but they're the sort of things. So when when people aren't understanding what you're trying to explain, when people ask you, just fix me, they're very general in what their concerns are. They uh, don't listen to what you're telling them. And so it's often – it's it's – I mean – I think the person we work with is great and I think she can really help people. But it's also a little bit of a test because if you are really sort of wanting help and you're listening to advice, then you'll go and see this person because it's not an intimidating process. And if it's kind of like if I'm giving you advice that I think this is good for you and it'll help you in your recovery and give you strategies for dealing with recovery, there's not only people who have a body dysmorphia, it's also dealing with the recovery process so often these people can be can find the recovery very difficult and seeing someone like a psychologist can really help with that post-op sort of expectation week one you know this isn't what i expected and sort of hang on okay it's a like you're not gonna this isn't the final result um and having strategies to be able to cope with that intimate uh, intermediary period yeah, it's and I always um, patients that already are seeing a psychologist or already have psychiatrist involvement for anxiety in particular is um, one. It's, it's certainly um, important for them to disclose that to us, and it's definitely not a a negative that that we would say you are not appropriate for surgery if you're uh, otherwise appropriate. But it's also really good to have that person aware that you're coming up to having surgery talk to them about it before you're having the surgery because they are the experts rather than us in terms of dealing with that roller coaster ride after surgery if if it is something where you're feeling overwhelmed with your recovery. The other thing that I wanted to say is that, you know, certainly we don't say yes to every patient that walks in the door that wants an operation. We have a pretty rigorous consultation process where we would generally generally spend at least an hour with any new patient. And so you really get a bit of a feel for um, their thought processes and where they're at, and um, most definitely, we would we would not be offering surgery to anywhere near 100 percent of people that walk in the door because the and the hardest thing and with a lot of experience is actually learning to say no to people that are not appropriate and and 
you know, often I would, it's not just usually a hard no, it's a giving them a justification and an explanation of, of why I think they're not appropriate. And sometimes people just don't want to hear all those things. And often it's not just one thing, like, you know, you're overweight, you have to lose some weight, but it's also you're overweight, you're really unrealistic, um, you smoke, you um, yeah. you don't have any supports, uh, you've got uncontrolled blood pressure, whatever it may be. So, you know, go and address all those things, come back and have a chat, more than happy to see you. I don't think any plastic surgeons regretted declining surgery for someone who they're concerned about. But which is also why you come to people like of your calibre and people that have the means to be able to say no because if you're going to more desperate people who are just going to say yes to everything, then like they're not going to have the wherewithal to or the abilities to say no to people with these kind of issues. And and I say that to patients. I say I earn a living from operating on people. So if I'm saying to you... I don't think surgery is right for you at this time in your life, then it, like, it's a genuine belief because – We're not know. trying to be mean or rude or horrible. It is we want the absolute best outcome from a health and mental point of view uh, for everyone. My, my, our, our income is based on operating on people. <laughs> so we talked about before how um, you know, plastic surgery is more accessible kind of in that you – know, we can post about it on social media. There is certainly still stigma around it, but compared to even 10 years ago, that is radically different. The fact that it is more accessible to more of the world and of the community, what do you think the knock-on effects of that are for like women's psyche or men's, I guess? Well, I think in general, um, it's, a, it's a very positive experience. So if all of the previous things that we've just talked about are, you know, patients don't have issues with those, they've got realistic expectations, they've got a, a genuine problem or area that we feel that we can fix, then it's a really rewarding experience for everyone involved. And I, I think I already said roller coaster, but you know, there's always a little bit of an up and down and the struggle after recovering after surgery. But for the vast majority of our patients, they are, you know, really pretty early on, very happy, pleased they did it, wish I'd had the surgery earlier, and are generally actually quite happy to share their experience with like minded people. And I think that's why our groups are are so popular and um, a real community that gets built up around patients that is that is really just a genuinely supportive environment, which is not in any way trying to talk people into having anything that they don't need or don't want, but it's more of a support of women to women, largely, that have gone through or are going through a similar process. But further to that, and Kim, I, I, I'm not sure we've never really talked about this, but the lot, like everyone, like you've just made this massive distinction between cosmetic surgery and other plastic surgery, which is we refer to as reconstructive surgery, and and you know in the like even within the plastic surgery community, um, and certainly in the general community, like they seem like poles apart. But in reality, particularly with what we're doing, but with it, almost every aspect of the more cosmetic plastic surgery, it's a much more blurred distinction. So we're much more. We're not, we're not creating something that is abnormal or outside of like more than two standard deviations away from the mean. We're basically generally, even with tummy and breast surgery, just restoring someone's body to something that is more normal and something maybe that they were previously or something 
that they feel more comfortable with. But it's not something that is abnormal. And the distinction between that and reconstructive surgery is actually not as vast as what you maybe perceive it might be. Yeah, I think especially when you're bringing that up today is really relevant with the um, tummy tuck conversation because um, most of the women that we see have had pregnancies where their their tummies and their muscles have been um, damaged from pregnancy or they've had significant weight loss. So in the vast majority of procedures that we do is actually reconstructive, whereas a lot of members of the community or even of our colleagues of ours that don't deal so much in those areas um, don't necessarily get it. That, that That is, for a tummy tuck indeed, much more of a reconstructive um, procedure. Sure, we want to make them look fantastic and get a good cosmetic outcome as well, but a lot of the reason to do it is to restore the muscles and the skin back to what it was beforehand. And if you, and if you haven't listened to our podcast on tummy tucks, now is a great opportunity to go back and listen to it. And also that you're working within the confines of society. Like you talked about the woman in the brachioplasty podcast that couldn't buy shirts that fit both her body and her arms. Like there is very strict ideals outside of these walls that these women are, want to be back to in terms of their prior bodies and that is reconstructing that image as well. Body positivity has been a huge movement. So we've seen a large upscale in body acceptance and, you know, looking outside of just a skinny blonde with big boobs as being the only attractive person. Have you felt that with this kind of huge movement affecting how women and men see their bodies, has have you seen like a downtick in people that have come down to you or with the people that have come in has that body positivity movement affected how they speak the the term mummy makeover um has has some connotations but i think a lot of these mums are you know in the past would have been like oh you know i've had three kids so i should just accept how i am but now the with the knowledge and the communities and the sharing of stories is you know like I've done the hard work, I've spent all this time looking after my family and I've lost some weight but you know my my muscles and my stomach and my skin is still stretched, I can't, there's no amount of gym that can fix that, um, my breasts have dropped or they're too big and heavy and so it's actually by having the surgery is a really positive experience for them to restore them back to where they were pre-kids and can actually then help their psyche and their ability to actually function and spend time with their kids. They will be able to wear bathers to go to the pool, whereas previously they might have been like, oh no, I'm too embarrassed to put those on. And so their kids, their families are actually missing out a bit. So it's, it's not just, you know, body, but mental positivity that can get them back in the community even more. But even just the fact that it's called a mummy makeover, not a Kim Kardashian makeover, <laughs> I think sort of speaks to that these the people coming to see us. Uh, they're very realistic and, as Kim says, they just want to get back to doing things that they love doing. Not Normal being, life. Yeah, and not being self-conscious and, uh, and being more positive about their life. So the mummy makeover doesn't include a Brazilian butt lift. Brazilian butt lifts are a really interesting one, Kate. Like probably five years ago, we used to get asked about it all the time. It was such a common request. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody has asked me about it for maybe three years. 
Oh, I get the occasional question about not oh, as if, much you, as if you're five sucking years fat ago. out, can you? Oh, yeah, definitely not. And thank goodness for that because it's, I personally think, it's such a ch- terrible trend and it's such an abnormal appearance. And it's so you know, dangerous. I'd hate to sound like my mum um, <laughs> and say, what are they going to look like in, um, you know, 15, 20 years? So, what is going to happen to that? Are they, yeah, I. But also, as Kate just said, I mean, the safety. Well, the highest mortality of any operation. One in two thousand people die from fat injections into the buttock region. No, it's a hard no from me. Hard no from me. All right, I guess I'll schedule somewhere else. <laughs> um, so, on that note, we've talked about you know beauty ideals and body standards change all the time. We've gone from Marilyn Monroe to Twiggy to the famously mentioned Kardashians. Outside of Brazilian butt lifts, is there any recent things that you've noticed people asking a lot more of or has it been a big change since you started? Emrata. So when Emrata got pregnant, I had a run, I think five breast augmentation patients in a row within a week. I just want to look like Emrata, which not unreasonable, uh, but that's been the late sort of, one trend I've seen recently. I think also the awareness of, uh, and you said this before, about having combined procedures. So um, rather than saying, um, you know, I've, I've got large breasts, I want them dealt with, and then we do that surgery, and then six months later they come in, wow, you know, like, you know, I always hated my tummy before and now I, it's really obvious because I've had my breast fixed that, that people are aware that it, not in every circumstance, but it is possible to... Um, combine procedures on the breast and tummy and I think the other one which and it's probably because of the type of practice that we have a little bit as well is that the lower body lift and I think we probably both do a lot more of those um rather not more than tummy tucks but we would probably percentage wise do more than other surgeons necessarily because um I think yeah just being able to adequately assess those areas and it's it would be reasonably uncommon where a patient would come in thinking they definitely only needed a tummy tuck and we would say, look, actually the best operation for you is a lower body lift. They generally just have awareness of that and as soon as you ta- start talking about it, they're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I get it. And to be able to contour that whole area, I understand that that's the best procedure to be done. Whereas I think other surgeons may be more afraid of doing that um, extra part of that operation, um, but uh, in my hands anyway, I believe it's a, pr- it's a pretty safe. Did I? Say- <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Sound like um, called Kim Lee? <laughs> no, not Kim. She does love body lifts. Um, yeah, it's weird though. But I saw it. There was actually a online inquiry um, that said, "Oh, my surgeon doesn't do yeah. lower body lifts, so I've had the tummy tuck, but now I want to come and see you guys to have the back done." I'm like, "What? Why? If you needed?" Both of those things, would you not just do it in one operation? Um, if you were an adequately trained plastic surgeon, then that's it adds it adds oh. one to two hours maximum of, of surgery um, in an adequate facility with well-trained anaesthetists, which is what we, wherever we work and who we work with, um, it, it does not add in terms of... Um, Safety-wise, it doesn't make the surgery particularly more risky. 
On top of that, have you, like in the world of back contouring, has there been a large uptick in um, body, back lipo? Massively. That, that's probably been my my prediction at the start of the year was labiaplasty, which has, has seen an uptick, but a back lipo has just gone crazy. So, And I think it's a really great operation. Uh, the skin on the back is thicker. Uh, it c- contracts better compared to, say, the thighs or tummy even. Uh, and it's often that, that lower back area and even the bat wing area where there's not a lot of excess skin where you can get amazing contouring uh, with very, very small incisions, but it really complements the, the often a tummy tuck nicely. Has the word body contouring been around? Is that always what it's been called or is that a recent thing? It's It's been around for a long time but probably in you know general conversation um a lot a lot more and and maybe because we are seeing a lot more um patients that are having significant weight loss because probably the surgery for the significant weight loss or the bariatric surgery is actually taken a frame shift a bit as well so probably 10ish years ago lap bands were really 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 common and patients did lose a reasonable amount of weight initially, but they often plateaued before their goal weight. And a lot of those patients have um, converted to um, gastric sleeve or um, gotcha. bypasses. And so that people are actually getting to their goal weight with because their bariatric surgery is, um, is different. Yeah, I think lap I, – I mean, I operate on a, a stack of patients who'd had lap bands. And I, I would say easily there's maybe three or four – uh, BMI points difference between a lap band and a gastric sleeve. So I used to see lap band patients and they'd maybe get to a BMI of you know, 30, 31, 32 and now I'm seeing gastric sleeve patients and their BMIs are 26, 27, 28. So far, far that's a massive difference. Oh, okay. Um, we've spoken at length about mummy makeovers. What do you think the kind of effect for women that are coming in who do have children – what do you think the effect of them focusing on surgeries and, you know, mummy makeovers is having on their children and their potential for future surgeries? Um, a lot of the women that I see, and I'm sure that both of us see, actually talk about this when they come in for their consult as well. And sometimes they say, you know, like, what should I say to my kids and how I've got teenage daughters, um, how am I going to address that with them? Um, my responses and um writer here I don't have any children so I'm never giving anyone advice on how to deal with their kids really um, but uh, is is to be open and honest and explain the reason to them the same as they often word it to us so you know that you know when they're coming in and saying like I, I if they're looking for a breast augmentation like you know I, I feel like a man I don't feel womanly or if their breasts are large or if they've got excess abdominal skin and muscle separation it's like you know, I can't exercise, I have pain, I can't wear bathers, I can't exercise um, with my kids, I don't want to, um, do, I don't want to or I can't actually physically do those things that I want to do. So put that spin on it that it's not, uh, you know, I, I want the Kim Kardashian body kind of thing. It's, it's more I want to feel comfortable in my own skin but also pain-free. And I think when they are open and honest and address it like that, that the kids are not then immediately going to be like, oh, okay, you know, I want a boob job because mum has too. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not really that kind of approach. I think there's far less stigma associated with it. And as, as we've sort of alluded to, I mean, 
why would it be considered any different to someone having a hip replacement so that they can keep playing golf or tennis or going for a walk? Like if you've got large breasts and you can't exercise or you can't wear clothes you want, like and you, there's a way to have it fixed, like why would you not have it fixed? And that, that should be an easy thing to explain to everyone. Yeah, definitely. All right, final hard question. <clears throat> Some people might think feminism would be, you know, anti-plastic surgery, but especially, you know, recent movements in it, it's all about acceptance and women feeling empowered in their decisions and what they're doing. Do you think that that's in line with what we've been saying with the patients that are coming in? They, they feel strength and um, empowerment from having these surgeries. I definitely think you see that. And you see that in patients after the surgery and they're recovering and they're getting back into the, their lives. And I think we were here doing a photo shoot just a, a month ago or so and Prue, the photographer, um, just to try and lighten the mood, said whose sex life has improved after their surgery. And there was this like wails of laughter and every all of them said yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think whether it's feminism or body positivity, I think being able to feel comfortable in your own clothes literally uh, obviously has a massive impact on your you know, self-confidence and um, you know, your ability to do everything. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think one of the other things that Prue said that day too is it's one of her favourite, she's a photographer, one of her favourite days of the year is coming in and, and actually interacting with our patients um, and seeing how... Um, the surgeries they've had have impacted on their lives and how um, happy and, you know, these women that would have never, ever had a f- had photos in a bra and underwear before are, like, more than happy to strip Jumping off. Jumping at the bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Literally throwing away their clothes. Yeah. And, and it's a wonderful day for us as well um, to be involved in and seeing those kind of transformations too. Yeah, I think that's honestly been my favourite part of kind of interacting with this world that I never knew about is just seeing that the difference in women in the way that they hold themselves and the strength and the confidence and the happiness that they have in that you know that's not necessarily because they're like oh now I look like this unrealistic ideal they're like okay I finally feel comfortable in who I am I feel like the the person that I was meant to be I've had quite a few people say that before um like in particular breast reduction patients they're like you know now I feel on the outside like what I what I feel like I should be like, yeah. Just but they're all very normal people. Very they're normal. Very normal. They've got they've they they've got partners. They've got kids. They've got jobs. These are not people who are trying to become something that they're not. They're they're just trying to fit into their lives and and in, in, enjoy what they can do as, as best they can. Perfect. Well, that's all my hard questions for today. Thank you so so much for joining us uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate. If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics. So send your suggestions through to us on IG at replasticsurgery. That's all for today and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.